In a city in the throes of a debilitating opioid epidemic, faculty and students at Thomas Jefferson University have undertaken a mission of awareness and education related to combating overdoses and saving lives. It is a daunting task that requires an all-hands response to, in a true Jefferson sense, helping improve lives. From the Rams for Recovery group and the Student Opioid Response Team, to lessons within the nursing, population health, medical, health communication design, trauma counseling, and many other programs, harm reduction efforts include learning how to safely administer Suboxone and Narcan, which has come into play in real-life situations, and mapping out and improving the patient treatment journey in Philadelphia. In this episode of the Nexus podcast, experts across many areas of expertise at the university describe the epidemic's impacts locally and globally and its impacts within healthcare and beyond. We also look into how Jefferson is training students and staff to be citizens prepared to not only educate, but help save lives as the nature of the epidemic and the societal responses to it continue to evolve. Let's start with an overarching view of the epidemic from a pair of educators who focus on population health and harm reduction. While much of this episode will focus on Narcan, I wanted to ask some broader questions to start the conversation. What is the ideal approach to harm reduction and the ideal public health approach? I'm Megan Reed. I am an assistant professor in the Center for Connected Care within the Department of Emergency Medicine and in the College of Population Health here at Thomas Jefferson University. Harm reduction is a set of guiding principles that recognizes that drug use exists on a continuum from being not harmful at all to being quite harmful. It acknowledges that any change in a positive direction is a win, respects the autonomy of people who use drugs, and it recognizes as well that a positive change might not be the cessation of drug use. It might not even be a reduction of drug use. It's just a change in the person's life that is for the better as established by that individual person. The best approach to harm reduction is one that centers the individual, that recognizes the structural factors that manufacture vulnerability for certain people, especially people who use drugs, that works to dismantle those structural vulnerabilities while also, again, centering the autonomy and respect for the person themselves. I'm Rosie Frasso. I'm a professor of population health, and I direct the Master of Public Health program here at Jefferson College of Population Health, and I direct mixed methods research in our Sydney Kimmel Center for Research on Medical Education and Health Care. We need to explain what harm reduction means better to the public so that they appreciate the person-centered approach that it takes and the value that it adds in our ability to keep people alive and reduce the risk of death and other bad outcomes. Dr. Reed agrees that communication is key to educating the public, even the skeptics, about often controversial harm reduction efforts. When you have one-on-one conversations with people about more controversial harm reduction initiatives, you often find that everybody has the same end goal. And when you have those conversations, you can move the needle. It's when we don't listen to people and also practice harm reduction with the public about public health initiatives that can trigger a strong emotional reaction that we're not doing our jobs as well. Harm reduction does not just apply to the opioid epidemic. It is seen in everything from seatbelts in cars to condom distribution, with the overarching aim of mitigating risks. When it comes to drugs, however, it takes on added heft insofar as the dehumanization of people struggling with addiction, according to Dr. Frasso. A lot of the work I've done around 
empathy really focuses on reduction of that othering and trying to get rid of dehumanization and have people look in the mirror and appreciate when they're doing that. Language is really important in that conversation. So we have to use people first language, right? So folks who struggle with addiction, folks with substance use disorders, it's important to remind people that we're talking about other members of our community, other human beings, other neighbors, friends, children of friends. It's clunky to use person-first language, but I think it's a really important step in the right direction. It's easier to other than it is to see yourself. And we do it to protect ourselves, right? This could never happen to me. This could never be my family. This could never be my community. This could never be me. One ongoing battle in the harm reduction field is the debate over safe injection sites, something that the Pennsylvania legislature recently voted to prohibit in the Commonwealth. That directly impacts the ongoing discussion about establishing them in Philadelphia. Dr. Reed shares her thoughts on that conversation. I think it's particularly charged here because of the way that it was originally handled. Communities weren't engaged in the right ways. There were town halls with citizens that were the most contentious town halls I've ever attended in my entire life. Lots of yelling, lots of screaming. This issue is better handled in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. You can really have a rational conversation with people. I think it takes a grassroots, resident-led initiative, really establishing the common grounds that the parties have and recognizing that they're actually pretty closely aligned with one another. Everybody wants to see fewer discarded syringes on the street. Everybody wants to see less public injecting. Everybody wants to see fewer deaths overall attributed to overdoses. Dr. Reed notes that those sites serve as a centralized location for other services, including access to housing and other social determinants of health. Dr. Frasso notes that there are direct financial implications involved as well. Folks in our spaces sometimes forget that not everybody has the same lens on a phenomena that we do and that we've been trained to have. People often feel like, or what I've heard from others, is that a safe injection site is condoning what people perceive as a bad behavior as opposed to a space where folks who have a disease, the disease of addiction, can be kept safe while they are living with that disease. I think people perceive it as tax dollars spent on behaviors that are unacceptable. Harm reduction works in places and spaces where safe injection sites exist. Um, infection rates drop, the number of abscesses, the number of emergency room visits that are needed, and certainly the number of deaths that arise are reduced. That costs the health system an awful lot of money. If we need to give people money, numbers to hang their hats on to help make this decision, then these data are there. There's definitely financial benefits to providing a safe space for folks struggling with the disease of addiction. In another recent development, the FDA has made Narcan available for over-the-counter sales. There are concerns, however, about affordability and the current free options being shuttered, not to mention the stigma related to it, according to Dr. Frasso. Right now, most insurance will cover the purchase of Narcan. It's an interesting anecdote, but I was having a medical procedure and they go through all the medications that are on your list, right? And they read Narcan out and they said, you have Narcan? And I said, yes. And then I said to the provider, don't you carry Narcan? And in this room where several people were waiting for this prescription, the only other person that had Narcan was someone who worked at Starbucks and me. If you live in a city, if you live anywhere, because this condition has no geographic boundaries, you should be prepared to save a life. We train all our students to use Narcan. We train them all in hands 
only CPR. And now we're moving towards training everybody in stop the bleed because the issue of gun violence in our city is so out of control. How are these things being taught at Jefferson? In the MPH program this year was the first year we decided we were going to, it's day one, orientation. We're going to learn at least one way to save a life. Public health is about prevention and promoting and encouraging well-being. At orientation, Dr. Reed, my colleague and friend here, trains everybody who's starting the program to use Narcan and will continue to do that. Stop the Bleed training, Nora Kramer is a nurse that works at Jefferson and she does that training across programs. We bring her into the MPH program. We haven't mandated it yet. We haven't rolled it into orientation, but we're trying to build it into the coursework. The College of Pharmacy also provides similar training, as does the MPH program, with what Dr. Frasso calls a unique wrinkle. A cool thing in that class is that you teach the students how to teach others, and they spread it. One of their assignments is to teach other people how to use Narcan. She offers an overarching summary of the work that lies ahead. There's a lot of upstream work to be done around educating folks who do not struggle with addiction around the complexities of these conditions and what are the root causes and where are the opportunities to keep people safer. I think that's a hard sell sometimes, but if you live in the city of Philadelphia, you can't ignore this issue. Even if you live in the suburbs, you can ignore it a little bit, but not completely because it's everywhere. But empathy can be a little hard to foster when folks don't understand the root causes of disease and this is a disease. A couple moments ago, doctors Reed and Frasso referenced Nora Kramer, the nurse who does the Stop the Bleed campaign. Kramer is a registered nurse working in the trauma department. My name is Nora Kramer. I've been at Jefferson for 36 years. I do trauma education and injury prevention community outreach. Talk to me about the initiatives that you're aware of within Jefferson to train staff and students, not only in Narcan administration, but other approaches to harm reduction. In our city right now, in our country, we are faced with this incredible challenge of the substance abuse disorder. It's our responsibility as healthcare providers to understand this and to try to figure out what is the best approach. One of the things that is so important is harm reduction and educating people on using Narcan and having the resources that they need to enable them to survive. Life is so important and people are in different walks of their life. And unfortunately, those that do suffer from substance abuse disorder absolutely need education and support. Harm reduction is so important for the patient themselves. And it also helps healthcare providers to prevent a lot of the infections that could be running rampant. Several years ago, the hospital did become very aware that this is a serious problem. More and more of our patients have suffered from this. And we were looking at some of the strategies that we were using, and they actually obviously were not effective. Um, the enterprise formed an opioid task force to look at a lot of different areas involving our pharmacists, our primary care physicians, our ED physicians, the nursing staff, social work staff, outreach. And through that, a lot of initiatives were started and there have been a lot of changes. One of the big changes is we actually now have on our staff certified recovery specialists and looking at what was our role as healthcare providers in this whole epidemic that we see in our country. The task force did a great job of having people from all different walks of life in the hospital, people that worked in different areas to look at the huge 
picture of what we could do to try to make a difference. A major initiative in your eyes was giving Narcan to patients as they were discharged. How did that benefit the patients and the system as a whole? The disease of addiction is so challenging. It, it is so common that many people relapse. Many times when somebody has been in the hospital and when they get discharged, they are at even high risk, you know, if they relapse, you know, uh, overdosing. It is so important that people have the resources and educate their family of what would be the response if somebody was suffering an overdose. Educating the family, educating the patient is so important. It's one thing to do the education and to tell people what to do. It's another thing to be able to distribute the Narcan and have them have the resources with them with the hope that they would never need it. But you'd rather they have the resources and not need it than need the resources and not have it. That was a huge initiative, making sure that, that there was Narcan available. For the hospital step, if we can prevent people from overdosing and coming back into the hospital, it does make it a big difference on the overflow in the hospital because many times these patients did return pretty quickly. And this was just a lack of education on everybody's part. What have you found to be the best ways to connect with the patient population and then connecting with healthcare professionals about the importance of this? Do you have any tips that people could use to approach this? The biggest tip I would suggest to everybody is to not judge, be kind, to try to understand a little bit about walking in somebody's shoes and to truly understand that this is a disease no one really wants to become so addicted that they could lose their family, their friends, their job. A patient many times is going through many different struggles. Everybody deserves to be treated with respect, just like healthcare professionals should always be treated with respect. The patient has to be treated with respect. There has to be a way that we can communicate and respect each other where they're at. Talk to me a bit about your work in Kensington. I've had the opportunity to work for a couple of years as a volunteer in a clinic. We offer the ability for people to come and get showers, to get medication and to do some wound care. The wonderful thing is you see people on their turf, not in a hospital. Many times people would just open up and you would be able to get a feeling and understanding of what they are going through. Living on the street is very challenging. Nobody really wants to be living on the street. Nobody wants to not know where their next meal is coming from or where they're going to be able to, you know, use a restroom. Many of the patients that come in are very polite. They just are suffering from a disease that just, it has overtaken them. I just want to thank anybody who's taking the time to listen to this. We all have to be affected by some way. We all know someone who is struggling with substance abuse disorder and showing compassion, being kind, being there to support people. It is so important. Visualizing the opioid use disorder treatment patient journey in Philadelphia is a rather unique example of education that brought health communication design students and faculty together with a Jefferson Health team which received a Pew Grant to better examine the means through which people battling opioid addiction can seek treatment and help. I'm Renee Walker, Associate Professor of Visual Communication Design. I teach in a grad program called the Masters in Health Communication Design. We often partner with people in health-related fields looking to better communicate health information. I teach an elective course called Communicating Health Data. We cover basic foundational principles in information design, working with data and information to better 
communicate it in more understandable, more human ways. I had a mix of health communication design master's students and user experience design students working on a project with partners in Center City who received a Pew Grant to better understand how to create more harm reduction around opioid use in Philadelphia. This Pew Team project came to us looking to map the journey of a person who had opioid use disorder through the treatment system in Philadelphia. As Professor Walker explains it, the team took a deep dive to get a better understanding of the opioid use disorder problem and used that knowledge to distill themes down into accessible presentations, such as creating personas of those navigating the system to help create a subway-style map defining the process. Through the Pew team, we worked with researchers at Jefferson. We worked with a nurse who was working on the ground in opioid treatment centers with patients. And we also had an extremely helpful person who was previously a user advising us on the project. Now he also works in treatment centers. We had a few different angles of people to work with. The Pew team is looking to find opportunities to facilitate better treatment in Philadelphia. Our task or goal was to create a map that they could then use to identify areas where there's opportunity for improvement or where things are really working, where we can begin to improve our services as a city around opioid use disorder. Were there any specific rooms for improvement that you can cite? One of the things that we learned is that people don't do well going through these things alone and their whole ecosystem of family support, friend support, community support in general who are aware of the issues around opioid use disorder. Another pain point we identified is that there's a stigma around opioid use disorder where a lot of people see it as the user's fault, whereas it actually has a lot of really treatable medical symptoms. And if understood properly, there's ways that people in the community, healthcare practitioners, everyone can do a better job helping people through this process. As part of the research, the team did factor in Narcan administration education at Jefferson and beyond. That was one of the things that we heard a lot about in our beginning understanding phase. Megan Reed on the Pew team helped us understand the importance of people in the community carrying Narcan and encouraged all of us to get a Narcan treatment pen for ourselves, and a lot of us did, so that was great. It came up again when we were writing our three personas so that we could look at three really different types of people who may be going through opioid use disorders. We looked at an older patient, a younger patient, and just some of the different types of people that might be going through the treatments plans in Philadelphia. One of the opioid users that we mapped actually did have an overdose and received the Narcan pen. That was part of the mapping experience. We wanted to make sure we were covering all the potential routes that a patient might have on their journey. A lot of care put into thinking about what these people might be thinking or going through. 
The four-student team met once a week in class and at least once a week outside of the class period. Even though it will be a new cohort when the effort resumes in the fall, Professor Walker says that the team is still extremely passionate about the effort and values the experience. Next fall, I believe we will pick up the project again after the Pew team has had a chance to actually use the map, take it around as they present this to people in Philadelphia, policymakers, people like that. The goal next fall is to generate some kind of resource, so build on the map that we've already created but include resources, places where people can reach out to make it a real communication piece so that it can actually be put to use in Philadelphia. There was a lot of considerations that went into making this map not just a very technical and clinical feeling map, but making it feel very human. Let's head back to the clinical side. One Friday afternoon in early January, we went to the Brent Auditorium in Center City to observe an overdose reversal training session with Sean Westfall from Prevention Point, who, after the session, gave all students a Narcan kit to take home with them. He was offering information about what potential scenarios might look like and tips on how to potentially save lives. This was not just a one-off event, though. Hi, my name is Kathy Schaefer, and I'm an associate professor in the College of Nursing. I teach a course called Population Health and Care Coordination Transition. And every year, beginning of the semester, we're getting ready for the clinical preparation. I provide opportunities for students to be prepared for when they go into clinical. So my students go into the population, the community. Some of the key things that I find are essential for nursing students is to be prepared for opioid overdoses, Narcan reversals. And so today, my students are having a presentation by Prevention Point here in Philadelphia, being certified and to be able to use Narcan. How long has that been going on? We've been doing this since about 2018, when the course um, officially became Population Health. Take me through the importance of these lessons for the students. We're in Philadelphia. What's an area that over time has become really stricken with an opioid crisis. The drugs that are on the streets now are getting more and more dangerous. I do my students no justice if I only focus on what happens inside the hospital. I have to have them prepared of what happens outside and just as a, a human being, right, not just a nurse, but as a good citizen of Philadelphia, to be prepared if you might encounter somebody who needs help because they can't help themselves. So that's a big piece of why we're here. How do you help somebody who can help themselves? Professor Schaefer was asked if she's ever heard from students who were able to put these lessons into action while out in the community over the years. Actually, it's not even years. I've had students who've come back to me a week later and said, I was in the subway. I was over the Jefferson Station. I just had to. I was able to. We've actually had some students who have volunteered at Prevention Point and would go out into the streets. Just this last semester, after Sean came and did his presentation, I had two students who wanted to volunteer, and they volunteered at Prevention Point, and they went out to the street, and they did some street surveillance. One of the citizens of Philadelphia they happened to come upon on the street needed to be reversed. She notes that this is an issue that goes well beyond medical education. I don't even think it's healthcare providers. Opioid crisis, it's a public health crisis, reaches every fiber and fabric, like inch of this country. No economic status is exempt. No race or religion is exempt. 
no gender is exempt. But if you asked a general question in that class about how many students in that room have been impacted or have seen the impacts of opioids, more students would say from a personal perspective than from a professional perspective. How many students do you think you've trained in Narcan administration? Over 1,700 since the inception of this. We even continued with it during the pandemic. We did a, a Zoom prep day. And so I kept it going. When we first started out, we did it through the city of Philadelphia. They had a huge grant that they could give us Narcan when they were done. Over time, that grant has dried up a little bit. They'd still come and teach our students. The dispensing of Narcan was really hard to come by. And we found other outlets to help students get Narcan. And students probably in that room could tell you today where you could get Narcan easily. And we share all that information. But we've just moved on to Prevention Point because they bring Narcan. They're right in Kensington. They do a lot of work. And they give us really what's the latest and deadliest drug on the street. Serving as further proof of the ever-evolving nature of the epidemic, many people we spoke to noted that xylazine and trank are the latest dangers flooding Philadelphia's streets. Dr. Reed took some time to explain the basics of what's going on. Xylazine is a veterinary tranquilizer that's not approved for human consumption. When it's cut with fentanyl, it's referred to as trank or trank dope here in Philadelphia. Outside of Philadelphia, it's known as that as well, but sometimes billy cut. It causes pretty extreme sedation among people who are exposed to it. It's associated with severe necrotic wounds. And there are issues around safety while people are sedated. There's also issues around overdose response because overdoses that are opioid overdoses with xylazine on board look a little bit different and require a slightly more nuanced response. In a classic opioid overdose, you provide naloxone and you keep providing naloxone until breathing resumes every few minutes. With xylazine overdoses, Sometimes the breathing is restored, although shallowly, and the person doesn't need any more Narcan because the effects of the opioid have been removed. The problem is that the person keeps being given naloxone because they're still sedated and unconscious from the xylazine. What people are seeing is that when people do wake up, they're in extreme withdrawal because naloxone can put somebody into withdrawal. The more naloxone they receive, the more likely they are to come to in a state of withdrawal, which then might lead them to go out and use drugs more unsafely, causing another overdose. Dr. Reed has conducted qualitative research with people who use xylazine, and one area of major concern is with the resulting wounds. The wounds can show up in the injection site. They can show up outside of the injection site. We're a little unclear on exactly why they happen and why they're so bad, but it can progress to people needing amputations. Then people talk about being sedated, both being unconscious and waking up in uncomfortable positions, which is a concern if people lose blood flow to a limb for a long time while they're unconscious. People talk about in a basically blackout state and being sedated for hours and hours, coming to in a completely different location from where they last remembered being. One person I interviewed said that he came to and his girlfriend was screaming at him, saying she was going to leave him because he'd been acting so erratically for a period of hours. Nora Kramer agrees with these assessments and noted that xylazine and trank are bolstering the dangers of the epidemic. The wounds that people get and the complications are absolutely horrific. As inpatients, there are people with all different types of infections that need antibiotic care. It's not just that you can put an ointment on. Unfortunately, the type of wounds that we're seeing, these patients need IV antibiotic. You have patients that are suffering from endocarditis, the patients that get abscesses in their spine. And I've seen a tremendous increase of people that have lost limbs. More people are living on the street 
trying to push themselves in wheelchairs due to the fact that they have lost their limbs to horrible infections that they are getting from the xylazine. Getting back to how students are involved in the effort, meet the Student Opioid Response Team, or SORT, which was created by Jefferson students several years ago with a mission to train people on using Narcan, respond to overdoses, and educate peers about harm reduction strategies. Dr. Abby Kay serves as SORT's student advisor, Carly Honorado and Catherine Fulton are leading the club as co-presidents, which is a position formerly held by Zach Nichols, who talks a little bit about how the group got to this point in time. More recently, we've started to develop a volunteering program at Prevention Point Philadelphia, which is the city's syringe exchange located in Kensington, and just getting students exposed to working with people in the low barrier setting. For the past year or so, I've been volunteering there regularly during exchange days. It's been a really important experience for me, so I just thought it would be cool to get other people involved and just it's built from there. With an interest in studying harm reduction, Fulton had worked at needle exchanges in the past and reached out to Nichols within the first couple weeks of school looking to get involved with SORTS. This was something I was really excited about when I came here. Socks, obviously super welcoming, very knowledgeable about harm reduction and prevention point itself, and was more than willing to let me come and like other students to make their own experience at prevention point. SORT is a conduit for that. I feel like we've increased our presence there and also helped to educate students about the situation in Philadelphia and the resources available. Carly Onofrio lost a loved one to a heroin overdose when she was in the third grade. She shares that SORT members come into the effort from diverse backgrounds and a wide array of experience in the field of addiction medicine. We just recently started collaborating with a group called the Everywhere Project, who also does harm reduction outreach. We're looking for other partnerships with grassroots organizations in Philadelphia, too. Zach was really good about helping pull in leadership this year with different knowledge and experiences. He knew my story with my family, and so he thought I could bring that into there. And Dr. K as well, of course, has been my mentor for about 10 years now. What is the importance of this? Drug overdose is the leading cause of accidental death. In the United States, it beats car accidents, things of that nature, over 100,000 people the past couple of years. And then opioids make up the bulk of those deaths. It's a really large problem with a lot of moving pieces. And the medical profession had a role in helping kick it off. But then it's also important in treating all the various effects of the overdose crisis. We call people at Prevention Point who come there, we call them participants. They end up in hospitals for a variety of reasons due to infections, violence. So whether or not you're an addiction medicine physician, you're going to be working with the consequences of addiction in a variety of different ways, whether you're a cardiologist, infectious disease doctor, a hepatologist, to have some sort of literacy when it comes to working with people, not necessarily getting them off of substances or into recovery, but in treating the consequences of addiction, I think it's important. Dr. K says that the depth of the problem has led to Jefferson taking many tangible steps to help battle it. It shows the commitment that the medical college has that I think it's four or five years now that we give out Narcan at the white coat ceremony. When the students come in on every seat, there's their program, but also Narcan. And Dr. Pohl added the sentence to the white coat ceremony that states you're beginning your journey to becoming 
a physician and now you can save a life on the first day. It makes such an important statement to the medical students because I think one of the big problems we have is stigma. People generally blame people for their addiction disorder. Part of the belief of that is the first use is often voluntary. So people make the assumption that continued use is also voluntary. And we know that there's huge genetic components to addiction, just like any other illness. We really need to work on reducing stigma and making this just the same as any other part of healthcare. Carly Onofrio offers a vignette from the white coat ceremony that she attended. A student who sat down right near me and looked at the box of Narcan was like, why are they giving this to us? And she was somewhat quizzical, somewhat incredulous. And I said, oh, because Philadelphia and so many places have a very big problem with overdosing right now and opioid use in general, that this is how we can immediately help people like Dr. K said. I think it's really important to hand that out within the medical school too, because a lot of students might be coming from regions where they don't see this as much. They don't know what to look for when they're out and about. It's part of that early education in saying, this is what you need to be prepared for here. And this is why also these participants and people are so important to us. You're making that clear from the start that this is important to us and to the school in general. It doesn't end with that white coat ceremony distribution effort either, according to Dr. K. To give another shout out to SORT as a group, every year, the third year class has a half day session between clerkships on addiction medicine. One of the lectures is on Narcan. About three years ago now, we started having whoever's the third year in SORT give the talk to their entire class. It's so powerful having one of your own medical student colleagues giving it. I've heard a couple of instances of students and faculty having to use Narcan in the course of their everyday life. Do you know of any stories along those lines, be that you personally or people in sort or just fellow students? I've been a part of one overdose response at Prevention Point. I've definitely seen a lot more xylazine overdose. I would say it's not driving the overdose death rate in the same way that fentanyl is, but prolonged unconsciousness obviously comes with a lot of other problems. So I've been involved in taking care of a lot of people who will be in or around prevention point and we'll bring them in and just keep an eye on them. The overdose death rate in Philadelphia is really bad, about 1,200 a year. So it's like multiples of our murder rate, which is not low. And this is just death. But with something like xylazine, one, it does complicate re responding to actual overdoses where there is substantial respiratory depression. But but in a lot of the people's lives that we work with at Prevention Point, there's a lot of chaos and uncertainty. And xylazine really contributes to that because you're going to use some drugs and suddenly like you lose eight hours and all you wake up, all your stuff is gone. Maybe you've been assaulted. And then there's also problems from falling asleep on your arm for eight, 12 hours. I know a guy who fell asleep with his hand in the sun in the middle of the summer and woke up with a second or third degree burn on his hand. There's the acuteness of overdose, which makes it really dramatic. And like, obviously bodies are very easy to count, but there's this larger issue with how we regulate or don't regulate substances that I think gets ignored. Something with xylazine, we're seeing substantial increases in the rate of soft tissue infection. Uh, which can lead to amputations or down the road, it can lead to things like endocarditis. Those don't get tallied into the overdose death rate, but they're still part of the morbidity and mortality associated with substance use. Carly Onofrio concurs that xylazine complicates the harm reduction effort. 
it's not necessarily just the area of injection that's impacted by xylazine. It can be a completely different area of the body. So you might see somebody injecting in their arm, but they have xylazine wounds on the front of their shin. That can be tricky if somebody's going to get checked out and then only their injection areas are being assessed and yet they have a massive leg wound. That's a good point. The quote unquote traditional injection wound is at the point of injection and it's from bacteria introduced into the body from the actual injection. So this is going to be a raised inflammatory response, like an abscess. With xylazine, obviously bacteria is going to be introduced into the body, but the actual damage, it's an ulceration. It's the same basic mechanism as like what happens when you get like an intestinal ulcer. You just get tissue eroded. So you end up with actual holes in your body. And then that's where the infection comes in. One important point about Narcan, according to the SORT team and Dr. K, is making sure people aren't afraid to use it when it's needed. If somebody is scared to use it, if there's no opiates in the person's body and you're just concerned they may have overdosed, you can't hurt them. Right now, I have three boxes of Narcan over there. If I were to somehow magically give each of you one, we could all use it like a nasal spray. Assuming none of us have any opiates in our system, it wouldn't do anything. Here's this treatment that can potentially save someone's life. To have something like Narcan where if they don't need it, it's not a problem is really quite powerful. Catherine Fulton agrees wholeheartedly. That's why it's something particularly important for us to stress in our education or when we do have these Narcan trainings to make sure that people know not only that might not work if someone's having a drink overdose, but that it's not going to negatively impact them in the way that some people might have the premonition that it would and that it is like overall safe to give. Will it maybe precipitate someone's withdrawal? Yes, but it also is a life-saving measure and we don't want any of our students or any of our volunteers to hesitate for that reason. Talk to me about the regularity of the Narcan trainings. We're aiming for at least once a semester. Kate and I attended one in the fall that Zach was running while he was president. We did that training and then when we took over, we just organized one last week. I know the trainings in the fall are bigger because that's when you have the new influx of first-year medical students. Over the course of two days in the fall, SORT representatives said some 80 students attended the sessions, while a single session in mid-April added another 20 to that tally. Carly Anafrio says it's as simple as reserving a classroom for the events that tend to last about an hour. We do volunteer orientation training for the different sites that we go to, and also just a cultural introduction to a little bit of addiction medicine for people who don't have any experience with it. And then we finish with an Narcan training. You can train someone how to use it in five minutes. People at Prevention Point do it with participants all the time. To my mind, it is good to explain to medical students how to use this medicine that they've been given, but I would say it's maybe even more important to explain to them more about why they're being given the medicine than actually how to use the medicine. It's more of the context that's going to be more useful to them in their practice. Carly Anafrio shared a desire for more addiction medicine training in undergraduate medical curriculums, and that's something that Dr. K notes already exists, but could certainly be bolstered due to the ongoing epidemic. It's not a question that if you're going to see it, it's when you're going to see it and probably earlier in your training rather than later. To be fair, it is in the curriculum. Every specialty will say we want more time for our specialty. But yes, I obviously think everybody should have more training in this. For Catherine Fulton, it all circles back to empathy and understanding. I feel like this particular patient population is extremely misunderstood and rarely, if ever, gets compassionate care. If we can do anything to make it so that people aren't turning a blind eye, there are treating people with extra kindness. I think that really goes a long way in just changing or shedding light to this group of people who just need a little extra compassion.
Dr. K worked in a South Philadelphia methadone clinic for 15 years. There, she learned that one of the barriers to care was a lack thereof. I still remember one patient, I encouraged them to let their doctors know they were on methadone, and she had fractured her pelvis, which is exceptionally painful. After she got out of the hospital, she was going to see the pain specialist. And the first thing she said to him was, I want you to know I'm in remission from opiate use disorder on methadone. And he put his hand in her face and walked out. There are some less educated physicians who have just not helped patients in that way. And it's really distance from care. One thing that is so exciting for me with SORT and residents and attendings today is there's so much more understanding of that. As physicians, we want to be kind to everyone, but this is a patient population and they have so much childhood trauma in general, as well as adult trauma, that I think extra kindness goes a long way. To that end, Dr. K says Jefferson has taken tangible steps to provide that compassionate care in the pursuit of improving lives for patients, as well as fostering empathetic caregivers. We have two addiction fellowships programs. They're both fairly new. One is addiction medicine through the Department of Psychiatry, which is historically where it's lived. The other one is through the Department of Family Medicine. It used to be that it wasn't a popular specialty and it was only through psychiatry that you could do it. And now it's expanded tremendously. Any physician specialist can actually do training in addiction medicine. We have some amazing champions in the hospital, including the emergency department and in our internal medicine inpatient really working well with this patient population and doing what they can to try and get them into treatment. People often think of methadone and buprenorphine, oh, you're just trading one drug for another. You're not really in recovery. The medications we have for opiate use disorder, you should not be able to tell someone is on it. They're not getting high. Technically, someone who looks like it should look just like us. And when they do look high, it's because they're generally using other substances. But I think that's also another form of stigma. Oh, you're using this addictive substance. So you're not really in recovery. I hear that. I hear, oh, like you're, you're killing yourself. And I think people underrate, kind of to echo what Dr. K is saying, the degree of trauma and loss in people's lives. There's a really large extent to which the use is actually, they're self-medicating. They have differential access to healthcare and other services, limited resources. This is people's way of actually staying alive. And then I think maybe it gets away from them a little bit or a lot, depending on their life circumstance. But this is actually a solution to another problem that you are not seeing. All we're seeing is the person coming in. Maybe they're looking sleepy. Maybe they have a weeping abscess. And we're not seeing all the context that led to this point. If you think that people are trying their best, the people I've met in Kensington are some of the most interesting, very thoughtful people. It's not easy to live there. And they've really done a good job of considering a lot of angles. They're really savvy in a lot of ways. Dr. K says it's of the utmost importance for care caregivers and people suffering from addiction to connect on a human level. I always think of it that somebody who's in withdrawal from opiates, it's the stomach flu times 10, they feel so awful. They're in so much pain. They're just so sick. And it's really hard when some smiling person comes in saying, let me get a history from you and then gets annoyed at them that they're not complying. One thing I've always found useful is if you're having challenges working with someone, if you ask them how their childhood history and how they became addicted, it's amazing how often that changes your point of view and how you see the person, because it really gives you tremendous insight. So yes, addiction medicine is covered in a variety of ways at the university. Still, Professor Schaefer has one item atop her wish list. I, I just wish that every department in the university, every college in the university had the capability. I wish it was a generalized training for all the students here at Jefferson. 
To learn more about this and other Jefferson stories, please visit jefferson.edu backslash the nexus. Today's interviews were conducted by Brian Hickey with production support from Dan Bernstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.